is that I realize even as I've tried to walk with Christ now for you know, the past 20 plus years, that the way that I had regarded sin from my youth still finds its way back into my sensibility. And, you know, I've, I've always kind of had the, oh, boys will be boys, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more, say no more, of, you know, these little picadellos of sin. It's, oh, it's just, you know, my, my, my little foible that I have here or there. And I realize God does not share in my view of my sin. Not even close to, to that at all. And that to him, not only is it a big deal, and not because he's some stern God waiting to throw the lightning bolt at me, but because he loves us so dearly. And as we look at this story, we go from an ordered creation of beauty to God daring to turn it over to us and allow us, in the image of God, to continue in his great work on this beautiful creation that he is custom-made, bespoke, just for us. And now as we kind of take the baton from God, what it is that we begin to do. And it is a, a frightening prospect. And so my first point, as we consider all of this, is man's sin. In verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And I can look at that and say, well, that was them. I'm kind of a good guy. I, I think happy thoughts. Not every thought of my heart is only evil all the time. And then the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But, and here's the glimmer of hope here, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so in verse 9 it says, And this is the toldot of Noah and his family. And so now a very solemn chapter opens up in the story of us with God. Now, before I jump into that, let me show you a bit of a, a distinction between what we have in the book of Genesis, where we began and now where we will come to very quickly in the midst of this narrative. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God concludes on the sixth day of his creation all that he had done, and he looks at all he had made, and here's what he says. God saw all he had made, and it was very good. You can see almost, a, a to anthropomorphize God, a, a self-satisfied smile that curls the edges of his, of his mouth as he looks at the wonder and the beauty and the order and the balance and the elegance of everything that he has made, how beautiful and perfect it is, and my pinnacle of creation, men and women, they are now going to enjoy this. Mwah! Bellissimo! How beautiful is this? And now, moving on, as, as I read here, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, 
and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Glimmer of hope. But now look. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So this pinnacle beauty of all that God has done, he now sees. And just as God saw that all that he had made, he now sees all that we have made. And the word corrupt is used with uh, repeated emphasis here to show not only the corruption of the earth, but now God sees the corruption and all the people on earth had not only corrupted the earth, their relationships with one another, but they had corrupted all their ways. The walking with God that had been such a hallmark of, of Enoch and Adam uh, and, and even Noah, it is now instead a corruption of that relationship with God. And now the, the grief begins to become made more apparent. Now, as I mentioned Enoch, we, we didn't study out Genesis 5. It's a very interesting chapter, but we're going to have to kind of pick our battles here on what it is that we're going to try to embrace and understand. But so is, there's one bit, though, that I want to take a look at. And if you just kind of turn back, I want to just make notice of Enoch, because to the crowd that would have been reading this Genesis account originally, the Israelites, the Israelites getting ready to go into the promised land would have received this text at that time. What's their mindset as they're going in? The Israelites who were in chastisement in Babylon for their sinfulness, suffering under the foreign rule, as they're looking for hope in the scriptures, they would have taken back up these very scriptures as well. What's in their mind? Well, one thing that was always in their mind was one of the great heroes. And throughout all the rabbinical teachings, one person that definitely shines through to a degree that would be surprising to us because we don't think of him that much, but, but not in a, a, a Jewish context here. He is the hero. And, and this hero is in chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, verse, uh, actually, let's, let's look in verse 19. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years. Then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. And for us in our kind of modern ideas and even in our Christian perspective on all this, we think, Enoch, nice, nice, not thrilling, but nice. But for the Jew in, in the receipt of this text would have had in mind what Enoch had said. And the sayings of Enoch had been captured about what was about to come in the flood. And th those sayings are, are not just captured in some of the rabbinical teachings, but some of them were also then affirmed by Jude in the New Testament by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As he began to look at what was going down in our relationship with God. Let me, let me look at a couple things that are, are mentioned there in Jude. First of all, Jude looks at the landscape, and as he does so, he sees this and says, The Lord is coming with thousands, 
upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone. By the way, thousands upon thousands are the biggest numbers that can be um, described in, in that language. Uh, this would perhaps be billions and billions, uh, kind of a cosmos type, billions and billions, uh, Carl Sagan type idea, uh, would be coming to judge everyone and to convict all of them of the ungodly acts they have committed. So Enoch looks across the landscape and says, judgment's coming. He goes on to say, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. That's you know, so what I, again, remember earlier I was saying, yes, yeah, sin, I know it's not good, but uh, I'm not, the only inclination of my heart was not only evil all the time. I mean, certainly, certainly wasn't that. But then I realized, hey, even, I'm, I'm an encouraging guy. I might say positive things to people, you know, lift them up, give them a little kind of pep in their step for the day because, you know, that's the kind of guy I am. I, I like to inject a little bit of joy and sunshine into their lives. But then I read this and see, and they flatter others for their own advantage. And I realize, wow, even in my wonderful estimation of myself, if I really get down to it, See, am I doing this because I want to see God's name lifted high or because I want to see my name lifted high? Sure, I, I like the fact that I put a smile on somebody's face, but I also know that there's a little, I just scratched your back and maybe you're going to think a little bit highly of me and scratch my back at some point. There's some quid pro quo and I think that I'm in a sense investing a bit because I think I'm going to get something out of it. And at the core of it, even like the things that I think are so wonderful of my motives and, and actions are really just self-serving at, at every level. And if, if that's like the best of what I've got going on, well, then my goodness, how much is every inclination of my heart only evil all the time? That's the idea that all of our plans, all of our kind of not scheming, that sounds so Machiavellian, but just, just all of the ways that we're trying to make sense of how we're going to make it through in the world becomes in the end... All about me, 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 rather than and just selfish desire and gain, rather than about honoring this God who has made me. The best, the best of what I've got you know, becomes even that. And it's such a frightening prospect to realize that even these strong words that are here about man's sin is not about a time where, oh my goodness, that must have been real pandemonium then. Talk about hell on earth. I, I, wow, how about that? It's no different. And by the way, what Enoch is talking about here is fulfilled, not just in the flood, but when Enoch looks at and why Jude quotes him is that he's looking down the corridor of time to be able to see our condition. Matter of fact, as he discusses this, the context of, of verses 12 to 13 is that he's talking about you've got people that are hanging out even in the church, he's saying, then their blemishes when you take communion together, that was, love feast was a way of saying, be able to participate in the body and blood of Christ. That the shepherds, yeah, they, they, they may be shepherding, but they've got a bottom line motivation that is self-serving. That they are clouds without rain. They look like they've got stuff going on, but there's no deliverable. They are trees without fruit. Yes, they may be able to say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, but does their life praise the Lord? Yes, there's maybe a great enthusiasm for Jesus, but when nobody's watching, is there actually a real honoring of Jesus? Is, is really what 
Enoch is considering here. I've already, I've already looked at this slide. I'm going to slip past it. But this was the part that I think is, is very convicting as well. As, again, he looks at the time of Noah. And then as he looks down the corridor to us as well. And considers the state of men before God. And to realize that we are sinning before the face of a holy God. That we are grumblers, fault finders. That's a pretty convicting idea right there. You think, oh, what's the grievous sin that is going to take billions of angels to swoop down and bring judgment? Well, grumbling, fault finding. Kind of, you know, let, let, let's go kind of dish on the chief at work here. I know it is ridiculous, isn't it? How, you know, he gives us these expectations, but then he never follows through on it. Uh, I know, I can't believe that this policy came down again. Are, are we part of that crowd? How about even kids with your parents? Grumbling, fault-finding. Oh, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, kid talk. Not before the eyes of a holy God. They follow their own desires. Also, because we don't get our esteem from how God views us. You are my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Is that not enough from God? So instead of being able to have our esteem from God, we've got to boast. To be able to establish our, our own idea of self-esteem. Oh, sure, we don't do it in some sort of a over-the-top arrogant way. Because we know better and we're socially savvy. And we know there's no advantage in that. But we do it in a subtle way. Just kind of slip in. Yeah, I happen to be over at the homeless shelter. Yeah, you know, that's just, that's just how I do. You know, it's, I don't know, it's just kind of become part of me. It's, it's really interesting, really. Uh, I could talk to you more about it if you like. There. Uh, you can see that that is not a life lived in awe of a God not only made us, but that redeemed us as well. And so Enoch laments not only the current state of affairs and the Jews reading this at the time would have really leaned on these words to try and understand what it meant that every inclination of the heart was only evil all the time. It's a very broad phrase. But they, they did have the sayings of Enoch, which we have captured as well in the book of Jude, that would guide them into understanding what was going on here. Again, it's, it's not just an ancient idea, because Jesus reiterates the conditions here. In Luke 17, Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man, in his days. People were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage up to the very day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. I like that passage too because this idea of just pandemonium evil is here described by Jesus as, hey, you know, but people were kind of doing everyday things. They were kind of enjoying meals with one another, eating and drinking, and they were even getting married and life, life was going on in some of these institutions that looked like they might actually be kind of commonplace. But yet, the, the description that is given to us is that this, the way that that was going on before the days of the ark is, is what's going on now. And Jesus, when he comes back, will be doing those things as well. And when he comes back, we'll be just as surprised as they were in Noah's day when the door of the ark suddenly got shut up. And then here comes the rains and here comes the springs of water to be able to bring something rather severe. Total destruction of all the sin that had corrupted the earth. Now, 
God does this without any glee, for sure. Uh, but instead, my second point is God's grief. In chapter 6, verse 6, he saw the wickedness and the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. This phrase is as deep an anguish of a heart cry as the language can convey. This is not the idea of I've been wronged by a casual relationship. This is the person that means the most to me has hurt me to the core. And it's because God has such dear love and intimacy for us that the fact that we would just flaunt our disregard for him before his very face is what just causes him such intense pain. Likewise, a, a helpful experience for me, maybe to understand the smallest possible way, uh, God's pain. But there was a, a little while back, walking as a Christian, by the way, in, in our marriage, that I kind of unraveled into a, a season of my life where I indulged myself in just fleshly, self-gratifying fleshly indulgence. It, it happened kind of repeatedly for a course of almost like two months. And ultimately, uh, even though I kind of started to share it with brothers and confess, the, that was a kind of an intense experience, of course, and, and very helpful. But nothing like when they pointed me back to Deb, my wife, and said, have you actually sat down and confessed this with your wife? And I thought, are you really going there? And they were. And it, yeah, I think it would be very important for you to do that. And so, you know, I remember as though it were yesterday still sitting down in our bedroom and, and, and sharing with Debbie the, the details of the way that despite us having a one flesh intimacy, I, I had gone down this, this ugly path of, of self-gratification. And, and I'll never forget seeing her face fall. I mean, you, know, you hear that phrase in the Bible a few times. And to see grief come, come over her like, like, like no other that I've ever experienced. And, and I remember from there thinking, wow, maybe this is just a peek into what it's like for God as he considers how I sin against him. Right. And by the way, as a side note, I've, I've kind of heard this a few other times now from men who are doing great impurity groups that if, if you really want to have the, the conviction that really does bring repentance then do not keep from your wife anything that's going on, whether it be with pornography or masturbation or any of those issues, but to be able to sit before your wife and, and share any of that and to be able to appreciate the pain in that relationship as you've, in, in a sense, really sinned against the, the intimacy with your wife, because that then gives us a little bit of a perspective of what it would be like to be before God, to come before his throne and confess those very same things. But for us, we need to keep in view that this is a God in this narrative of Genesis 6 through 9, a God who is in the throes of the deepest grief that could possibly be articulated, given the, the, the language that we have here. This is God's view. This is how dear we are to God. And this is the effect of our sin before God. It's not just, ah... Wasn't it a victimless crime? Oh, what's the harm in that? What? Well, you know, who, who really got hurt in the midst? Of, no, we are sinning 
before the face of a holy God who is deeply, deeply grieved. This is not my nature to kind of try to always meditate on this or hold this fast in my consciousness. That's why the, the, the Bible is so important. Because otherwise I just go off of my own sensibilities rather than having the Bible inform me of who God is, what his relationship with me is like, and what it is that he really does want, and what it looks like when I completely bring about a cosmic treason against him and, and how it does have that effect upon him. And so, in his grief, God does bring about what he now lays down here. So it says in verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening. One cubit high all around. A cubit is 18 inches, by the way, foot and a half. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on the earth will perish but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the, enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And then he also brings two of every kind of animal. That doesn't mean every single animal. It means every kind of, of animal. And then uh, seven pair of clean animals because something new is going to happen after the uh, floodwaters subside where uh, men... And women uh, will then eat not just the uh, produce of the field, but also then to, to be able to, to eat animals as well, uh, which didn't happen until after the, the flood story. You know, but as a side note, there are other flood stories, and perhaps maybe especially if you're in school and somebody wants to try to show how perhaps clever and snarky they are, and they'll say, well, you know, the God's story of the flood is just so derivative. And... It sounds smart, and he said, well, yeah, because there are other epics, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, the other Mesopotamian and Egyptian and Babylonian stories of a worldwide flood. And if you look at them carefully, you can just see that, that the way that is laid out in the book of Genesis is, is really just a borrowing from some of these other tales. Well, if there really was a worldwide flood, don't you imagine that peoples of the South Pacific and of Mesopotamia and of Northern Africa and of pick your spot would likely have some sort of a story that could have made its way through the oral tradition and perhaps survived to today. I think it only makes I think it's only encouraging to my faith to know that, that all of these other spots too. And then go ahead and read the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's not a, a, a esoteric text that you can't access. Go ahead and read it. It is worlds apart. From what we've got here, yes, there's a flood and yes, there's an ark. But the, the idea of it is so different than the straightforward truthfulness of the, of the Bible. I mean, everything there is just so fanciful and metaphysical. It, it, you know, they, they talk about the ark being one acre big and its length and width were exactly the same. And then its height was exactly the same. And so it's a cube. 
Now, a cube floating in water is just going to flip around. I mean, people have made these models of this, this arc versus the arc of, of, of Gilgamesh. And, it, I mean, the, the difference when you see them both floating in water or having any sort of, of tides affecting them, it's actually quite comical. Uh, it's almost amazing to, to look at the, the, the dimensions of this arc and what a seagoing vessel it, it proves to end up be, becoming as a result. But not only of that should be like, oh, so that proves your faith. No, I think the idea that there are other tales of this ought to be the case. We ought to be worried that there are no other tales throughout the earth of a, of a worldwide flood. Certainly, no matter how pagan or, or, or how pious you are, I would imagine that you would have some sort of an oral tradition about the idea of a worldwide flood that had had that effect upon you. Now, as the flood does come, because we know from Colossians 1, 15 to 18, that Jesus not only made all things, but that he holds all things together. And that God is not a God of disorder, but of order. And, and, and as God is holding all things together and affecting order in the most wonderful of all ways, and delighting in order, and seeing that it is very good, now when he sees our railing against that order and our corrupting of it, God basically is saying, that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. And he removes his hand from the order. And if you remember... The order that it came was that the, the waters from above the earth and below the earth were separated and the land was then separated from those waters. All of that was the ordering of God. And now God says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you. And, and as he does, and he, and he kind of removes his intervening, loving stewardship over, over all creation, now suddenly down come the disorder. Here comes the waters from above. Here comes the waters from below. Here comes disorder. Here comes chaos rather than order. All across the earth, here is the natural consequence for rejecting the good and beautiful plan of God. And if you want to reject that and bring about what it would be without God, well, this is what your life looks like if you want to live it without God. But yet God, in His mercy, makes accommodations for this ark. In a sense, Noah becomes like another Adam. Just as Adam walked with God and yet then had his, his stumble, which, which caused the fall of man. But, but now Noah also walks faithfully with God. He was a preacher of righteousness, the New Testament tells us. For 120 years, he built this ark. He went from being a preacher to a carpenter to a captain. And then later on, he'll be a farmer. Uh, that, that's his resume over his life. But at, but at this point in time, after building and building and building and doing it faithfully, perhaps to the derision, he's in a rather arid climate where he's building this ark. Imagine the dimensions of the massiveness of this ark as he builds it for those 120 years and all that would come there. Yet nonetheless, he remained steadfast and faithful. And in the midst of disorder, he obeyed God exactly. And followed the ordered plan of God and created a small respite from the disorder that would come by aligning himself with the order that God had given to him. And God gives us the chance to order our lives around his precepts and his laws and his, and his will. And, and as we do so, we also know that it is beautiful. We never come away from obeying God with regret. Like, oh, I can't believe I went and had that prayer time. Such an idiot. My goodness, I'm wasting my life before the face of God. Man, what, what, a, 
man, I read the Bible last night and convicted my heart. Man, what, what am I doing with my life? Reading the Bible. Nobody comes away. Nobody comes away with having had the experience of the divine and the order that comes with the divine ever thinking, oh, that was a mess. No, it's, it's always self-affirming again and again. And here, the self-affirming for Noah is, this thing works. I, I did it. Holy smokes. But also imagine at the same time, God is not a God to be trifled with. Because even as we kind of appreciate the story of the ark and imagine the animals and the fun and all of that as, as they've gathered in, there's something very real going on. And it is a consequence for sin. And everybody else in their sinfulness is destroyed. And justice is wrought upon the earth. And that, as Galatians says, God cannot be mocked. We reap what we sow. If we sow to please the sinful nature, we reap destruction. But if we sow to please the spirit, then we reap eternal life. And I think even as we're sitting here, let this story be a reminder. God don't play. Sin is a real deal, but also redemption is also included and affected by God in his relationship with us. But lastly, what I want to look at is man's sin, God's grief, but also in the midst of that, his costly, costly mercy. Now, I know you know the story. Floodwaters rise, they, they cover the earth, uh, they rise for 150 days. Uh, after that, they recede for 150 days, then they wait 40 days, and they send out a raven. Raven doesn't come back. They send out a dove, dove comes back. They send out a dove again, dove doesn't come back. Wait another uh, bit of time, and, and then open the ark on dry ground, and, and off they go. So let's go ahead and we'll fast forward through chapters 7 and 8. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky. And on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea, they're given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. And for those of you who are having a chili competition during the Super Bowl today, you all say amen. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. God here is now setting us up to be able to see the value of that which represents life, the blood of a, of a, of a being. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by human humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God... Has God made mankind? This is an encouraging moment here because he's affirming that despite all the inclinations of evil in the heart, all of the reset buttons that God has hit, you still are made in the image of God. You are still an image bearer. And all that that means, and if you don't know all that means, go back and listen to chapters uh, 1 and 2 sermons and all that we said about that. And then verse 7, As for you, be fruitful, increase in number, multiply on the earth, and increase upon it. And now here comes the costly mercy. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. The birds, the livestock, the wild animals, those that came in the ark with you, every living creature on earth. 
I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. As we move on here, we'll see this throughout the book of Genesis, but never lose sight of this. The hero of the story is God. A lot of times we think, oh, we're going to talk about the flood. Oh, Noah, yeah, I know Noah. I know him from Veggie Tales. I know, we have these preconceptions even in our mind of Noah. Would it surprise you if I were to tell you through the entire flood narrative, Noah is not given one single line to say. He is a silent player in this entire narrative. God is simply using what he has to be able to display his mercy. Uh, and it is, it is not of Noah or, or all of his greatness, but the mercy of God. Let's move on. And God said, verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds. By the way, that word rainbow is a, a bit of a stretch for modern translations. There was no word for rainbow. The word was just bow. The bow that was a weapon of war. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, just keep that in context as we read it. I will set my bow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. By the way, this is the only time that God makes a covenant, not just with us, but with all of creation. And it just shows the connection that we have and the stewardship that we have over the animals and over creation itself too. Verse 16. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. And, and here is that sign, right? Here is the rainbow in the sky. But as I mentioned, he says it is a bow that is set in the sky. Psalm 7 verse 12, referring to this bow, it, there's 75 times it appears in the Old Testament, always in the same way. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. That's God talking about the consequence for sin in that case. Psalm 46, 9. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Isaiah thirteen eighteen. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. So the bow is not a happy idea. But God says, but I'm setting my bow in the sky. Now, uh, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this many years ago in, in London. He said, isn't it a good thing that the bow is not pointing towards us? As though God were training his, his weapon of war upon us and saying, Hey, guess what, everybody? Everything's going to be all right. There's mercy for you now. And this is the sign of my mercy. And it is as though, let's say today, it would be as, as though there's a, a, an AK-47, right? With its sights trained on you from the sky. You know, kind of, you know how it's like you walk around and the rainbow seems to move with you, right? Imagine an AK-47, wherever you look, like there's the barrel, like right on you, where, wherever you go. Again, for, for our modern sensibility, 
that would be as exact a, a parallel as we probably could imagine. Is that the, the barrel of a gun, if, if the bow were pointing down. But it's not. And, and as I said, this is about a costly mercy that, that God offers to us. Now, it, it also is not just the case that the bow is hung up. Because if you want to describe the idea that the bow is no longer in service, you would have described it in the way that I just described it in Isaiah, that he would break the bow. right? But, but he doesn't talk about it as the bow being broken. But he says, see, I have established my weapon of war in the sky, always to remind you that there will be mercy for you. But we know that that mercy is costly. Because God is still a just God. And would it be right if there were, let's say, in Norfolk, Virginia, over the course of the past couple months, someone that repetitively and chronically abused young children? Some of, some of your own children. If there was a pedophile that had, had, had actually enacted that upon your kids, right? Say that, that heinous crime had occurred, and he goes before the circuit court, represented by Rodolfo, the judge in the case says, you know what? And I'm just feeling merciful. Go, be warm and well-fed, young man. Hope my happiness has an effect on you. How would you feel about that? No, you'd you get the pitchforks and the torches ready to go. Like, how dare they release this guy back into the wild again? And then you look on the Google map at the uh, sex offenders, and he's in your neighborhood. Like, we're going to do something about that. The fact that God is a just God allows us to be a people of peace. Because we realize that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and not for ours to enact. But also, because God is a just God, there needs to be justice. Or, or else he's a sham of a sovereign, a sham of a, of a judge. And so, there needs to be a consequence for my fleshly indulgence. For my pride, for my deceit, for whatever it is that has marked your walk, there needs to be a consequence for that. The, the idea of just a God who just is, is able to kind of write blank checks or give you a bigger credit card uh, is not an appealing idea, especially if you've ever been deeply hurt and wronged by, by someone else's violence against you or your family. You realize how much you appreciate the balance of true justice. And God does bring that true justice. But we, we are the ones who have committed chronically cosmic treason, thumbing our nose at God in the way that we've lived our lives. The way that we've ordered our lives, not around Him, but around our own desires, again and again and again. And, and for God just to say, hey, we're good now, actually kind of rings hollow. And the reason that this is a costly mercy is because he's not broken the bow and he's not hung it up. He has pointed the bow. He's pointed the bow not towards us, but he's pointed the bow towards his son. As Isaiah also says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. He took the brunt of this weapon of war to satisfy the justice that would have otherwise been satisfied in us. And if we have not 
contemplated the depth of our sinfulness, the depth of our need for God, and we have run after the reconciliation that He offers. If we've not done that, then we have nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment still. And so God lays out for us this astounding connection to the floodwaters. In 1 Peter 3, he says, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water, the water that we just read about, wasn't just about that. It was pointing towards the fulfillment of it all in Jesus. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And why was there a resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because there was a crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. He bore the arrows. And by that act, baptism now saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it says here, not, not some kind of, ah, let me, let me go ahead and out of impulse or emotion try to connect it. No, this is a deep contemplation of our sin, of God's grief, and of the depth of His costly mercy that is offered to us. And I have just a, a simple concluding charge here that if, if you're here and you have not ever had the opportunity to allow the Scriptures to get you kind of sobered and sombered, about the idea of how it is that we transgress against a holy God. If you've not been able to, to see the beauty of God's plan in the face of that through real repentance, biblical, true biblical repentance, not a feeling, but a deep conviction of a life rearranged now for the means of living for Christ rather than for our own desires. If, if God has not had the full opportunity to be able to affect that in your life so that you then can likewise respond to that costly grace by being buried with Christ in baptism and raised with Him to a new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through this amazing fulfillment of, of God's plan that now saves you also, let me encourage you. Please, ask somebody about this. You don't have to swim a sea, climb a mountain, forge a, a river in, in all of this. You just simply need to be able to let the Spirit through the Word really bring you to the realization of who we are, but yet what God's plan is for you. Please, please, don't let all that God has done here, setting all of this up over the many eons, to be brought now to our attention to now just be falling flat and to have no effect. It is meant to be for glorious effect so that we can finally know the fullness of God's plan in our life and the sweetness of the peace and the grace and the relationship that Jesus has always wanted with us in the fulfillment of all that we've seen through this scripture. Amen. Thank you. Amen.